The problem is we hold grudges and we bring up stuff from a long time ago. You're in a disagreement with your spouse and you say, well, I remember 20 years ago. Wait, wait, what? Stop with the 20 years ago. <laughs> Love keeps short accounts. So I heard about a couple that was celebrating their 25th wedding anniversary. Big event, friends and family were there. Husbands got in front of all of the folks and said to his wife, my dear wife, you've been such a great wife these 25 years, and to show you how much I love you, I wanna take you to Australia for our anniversary. She was so excited. She had never been down under before. She said, Australia, koala bears, kangaroos, Shrimps on the Barbie. Uh, I can hardly wait, that's so great. Man, she said to her husband, if you're doing this for our 25th anniversary, what will you do for our 50th? He said, that's when I'll pick you up. So it's, <laughs> it's not good, good sign. One of the richest men who ever lived, J. Paul Getty once made this statement. I would give my entire fortune for one happy marriage. One happy marriage. Is it actually possible? I believe it is if we do it God's way. And I wanna to talk to you about how to divorce proof your marriage. Now, this isn't foolproof. There are exceptions, but overall, if we do what God says in his word, you will have a long-lasting, happy, and blessed marriage. You see, after we walk down that aisle and say, I do, there's a lot more to do. If love is a dream, then marriage is the alarm clock. And the real hard work of having a successful marriage begins. And yes, it is work. There's God's part and there's our part. And it's sort of like a garden. You know, if you want a garden to grow, you have to tend to it. You have to weed it. You have to water it. Same is true of marriage. You could also liken it to your human body. If you neglect your body, it'll break down. Well, it's gonna break down no matter what you do, but there are things you can do to be stronger and be healthier. The same is true of marriage. A well-known comedian once said, quote, the secret of a happy marriage remains a secret. <laughs> is that true? I don't think it is. I think it's right here in the scripture. And there are threats against our marriages today, and I'm gonna identify some of them. I certainly can't identify all of them, but threats to our marriages. The Bible says it's the little foxes that spoil the vines. Little things can become big things. You think this won't become a problem. This is what happened to Eve in the Garden of Eden. She engaged with the snake. She entered into a conversation with the devil and ate of the forbidden fruit and shared it with Adam and he too ate of the forbidden fruit. And all of the problems we have today stem from that very bad decision. So here's number one threat against your marriage, selfishness. One word, selfishness. If we were to sum up in one word what breaks most marriages apart, it would be this, because you walk into a marriage thinking that that person is going to meet all of your needs. Uh, that person is, 
if there's a problem, is the, is the one responsible, never you. It's always them that is causing the problems. Well, it's time to look in the mirror because you're part of the problem as well. James 4.2 says, where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and you fight for it deep inside yourselves. That's it. I want my way. I'm right, you're wrong. That's how we see it. We're not able to see the other person's point of view when we enter into this uh, conflict. And we're such a self-absorbed culture today. So let's think for a moment about the Garden of Eden. So Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit. Sin came into the world. Now here's part of what we call the curse. God said in Genesis 3.16 to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is negative. God is saying this is the ramification. This is the result of your bad decision. The word desire uh, means to compel, urge, or seek control over. So what God is saying is now, Eve, from this moment forward, you will have a, dis a sinful desire to control your husband. You will want to dominate your husband. And in the same way, he says to the husband, you will have a sinful desire to dominate the woman. Neither is right. We're to love one another. We're to put the needs of the other first. We're to submit to one another in the reverence of God, according to Ephesians 5. But the nature that we have is women want to dominate men. <clears throat> men want to control women. So the battle of the sexes began. It's all about self. What's the antidote? Do what God says. Obey the word of God. Ephesians 5, 28. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. Notice, it doesn't say husbands ought to love their, themselves and then their wives. It's assumed husbands love themselves, just like wives do. We all love ourselves. So all Paul is saying is, hey, love your wife as much as you already Love yourself. Love her as Christ loves the church. And what does that mean? Husbands, it means you lay your life down for her. What does that mean specifically? A Philippians 2 says, don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourself. Don't think only of your own affairs. Be interested in others as well. But selfishness undermines so many marriages. Number two. Another threat against our marriage, communication breakdown. Communication breakdown. You ever text someone and you don't hear from them for like a week uh, and you're waiting for an answer? Even worse, you text them and then you see the little dot, 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 stops. Well, what was that all about? You were going to send me a message and you decided not to? But this happens in marriage. We stop communicating with each other. A survey was done among divorced couples. They were asked why their marriage failed. 86% of them said deficient communication. James 1.19 says, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. But instead, we do the opposite. We're, we're quick to anger, and we're quick to speak, and we're slow to listen. Listen, if your spouse comes to you and says there's something you're doing 
that I don't like, you may think it's ridiculous. You may want to dismiss it, but if it matters to them, it should matter to you. So you need to hear them out, try to see it from their point of view, maybe explain your position, and then work toward resolution. Proverbs 18, 13 says, only a fool answers a matter before he has heard it. Avoid raising your voice. If you feel anger bubbling up inside of you, sometimes you may need to walk away. You may explode with rage and scream or do something else, even hit them, and feel justified that's never justified. And here's what the Bible says, Ephesians 4.31, get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, all kinds of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. I heard about a man that went to a counselor, he's having marital problems. He says, I just can't get along with my wife. And uh, the counselor said, well, the Bible says, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Man says, I, I can't do that. Well, okay, the Bible says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I can't even do that. And then the counselor finally said, the Bible says, love your enemies. Can't get off the hook, buddy, okay? We need to show love to each other, even if we don't feel it. Ruth Graham said, a strong marriage is made up of two good forgivers. The problem is we hold grudges. And we bring up stuff from a long time ago. You're in a disagreement with your spouse and you say, well, I remember 20 years ago. Wait, wait, what? Stop with the 20 years ago. <laughs> Love keeps short accounts. So when you fight or disagree, you fight to resolve, not to win. If you go into it to win, you've already lost. And Ephesians 4, 26 says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Hey everybody, I'm here with my friend Tony Clark from Newport News, Virginia, right? Yes, sir. First of all, I like your hat. Oh, thank you. That's a cool hat. Now let me see if I wear that hat if I look as cool as you. Can oh, I try it? Sure. I notice you have it sort of at an angle. Yes, so yeah. is gotta, this right? You gotta tilt it to the side. Yeah, that's it. That is it. I oh, think it no, looks, I think that's good. I think, I think you ought to start wearing them. <laughs> yeah. I think it's better on you. Okay, let's, let me ask you a quick question. It has to be really a fast answer because we used all our time up with a hat. Oh. Okay. What is the secret to a successful marriage? Tell those people. The secret to a successful marriage is making sure Jesus is in the center of the marriage. As you draw closer to Jesus, you draw closer to one another, hands down. Great. Now, how long have you been married? 33 years. He knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Okay, number three, uh, something that's a threat to your marriage, adultery. This is a big one. This is a marriage killer, potentially. Adultery, it's so significant, it made it into God's top 10, the 10 commandments. You shall not commit adultery. Every one of us probably knows at least one person who has fallen into this sin. Every one of us knows of a marriage that has come apart because of this sin. Imagine if in America we just obeyed this single commandment, how different things would be. How many marriages would still be together? Because as I've said to you before, you can trace almost every social ill and problem in America today to the breakdown of the family. If we would just keep this one commandment, but this is a real problem. Unfaithfulness is one of the greatest threats against marriage today. I read that 40 to 50% of all married men 
uh, expect to have or have had uh, extramarital affairs. You say, well, the dirty dog men. Well, the women are catching up, actually. Uh, their numbers are higher than they've ever been before. In 1953, while one half of married men had been unfaithful to their wives, only 26% of the wives responded in kind. But today, while only 19% of married women knew their husbands cheated on them, 41% of the women cheated. God warns us in the Bible of the effect of adultery. Solomon warned about going to the house of the prostitute in Proverbs 7. It says, listen to me, my sons. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Don't let your heart stray toward her. Don't wander down her wayward path. Her house is the road to the grave. Her bedroom is the den of death. Wow. Road to the grave. Bedroom of death. And that's not just directed to men, but to women as well. Now Jesus takes it to another level. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ showed that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And he says, now you have heard that it has been said, in Matthew 5, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Whoa, okay, that's getting pretty close to home. Now this word look doesn't just mean looking at a woman. It's looking as in continual gazing with the desire of lusting after her. It would be applied to a, a woman looking at a man in the same way. Jesus is not speaking of unavoidable and unexpected exposure to sexual temptation. He's talking about a person who intentionally puts himself in the place of vulnerability. And if they're exposed, they give the devil a foothold by letting it into their thought process. It's been said you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from building a nest in your hair. In my case, the bird better bring his own materials because there's <laughs> no hair here for a nest. But the idea is I can't stop the thought from flying over, but I can stop it from coming into my mind. I have to let it in. I have to entertain it. I have to welcome it. Now the final serious threat to our marriage is divorce. And that brings us to our text, Matthew 19. Uh, the religious leaders came to Jesus and they asked him in Matthew 19, verse seven, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wife, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who has divorced commits adultery. It's interesting. I say, so Jesus, why did Moses command people to be divorced? Jesus said, actually he never did. He permitted it. <laughs> and why did he permit it? Because of the hardness of your heart. See, sometimes people will say, you know the Bible is anti-woman. And the people who wrote it were misogynist and chauvinistic and nothing could be further from the truth. In Jewish culture and certainly Roman culture, uh, a woman was not valued as she should be. The Bible exalts the woman to the position she should have always been in in the first place, created and loved and by God himself. But in this culture, a man could divorce his wife for almost anything and cast her out on the street. She'd have no source of income, no way to make a living. So 
uh, Jesus is saying that's why it's allowed under certain circumstances. When is divorce biblically allowable? Number one, it's allowable when sexual, sexual immorality takes place. Again, Matthew 19, 9. If anyone divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, he commits adultery. So if there's unfaithfulness, you technically, according to Jesus, have grounds for divorce. But let me add one other thing. You also have grounds for forgiveness, don't you? And I've seen marriages experience infidelity, and I've seen the marriages survive it. It's not easy. Trust is lost, takes a long time to regain again, but I've seen it happen. I've also seen marriages devastated by infidelity, and especially if it's repeated infidelity on the part of the man or the woman. It's a marriage killer for sure. But let me offer a little hope. My mom was married and divorced seven times, and so I didn't have a good example. But by God's grace, Kathy and I have been married for almost 50 years now, so Christ can break that sin. Jesus can break a cycle of sin because sometimes people say, well, divorce runs in my family as though that excuses you somehow. Uh, well, that's, you know, it's, you know I'm, this is the way I'm wired. We're all kind of angry people and we yell all the, no, that. That's just a way to rationalize bad behavior. When Jesus enters the picture, everything changes. And if it hasn't changed, has he really entered the picture? The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is an altogether different kind of person. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything becomes fresh and new. It rained last night. Did you notice that? We had a clap of thunder so loud I almost jumped out of my seat. I felt like it happened right next to me. And everybody had their cars rained on. So it's the one time everyone finally washes their cars, right? But I love when the rain is done and the sun comes out. Everything is clean, maybe you might see a rainbow. I love those. And you know, you see all this rain and the storms and you think, oh, it's so awful, but God can work and he can intervene and he can change the narrative. So that's really if we want the narrative change. Here's the other reason God gives for divorce. It's desertion, desertion. First Corinthians seven thirteen. Paul says of a Christian woman has a husband who's a non-believer and he's willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. Now we touched on this when we were in 1 Peter 3 on how to get a new husband. Remember what Peter said? That the wife who's a Christian, if she's married to a non-believer, should win him without a word by the way that she lives, okay? So the Bible is very clear in pointing out if you're married to a non-believer, you should not terminate the marriage for that reason. Now, I don't know why you're married to a non-believer. If you're not married at all, let me just say, you want to marry a Christian. That's very important. Marriage is hard enough, okay? You don't want to make it harder when you don't even believe the same way, but maybe uh, both of you were non-believers when you got married and one of you became a Christian. Maybe you just said, I don't care what the Bible says, and you married a non-believer, and here you are, and you're thinking, I'm not so happy with this, and God spoke to me the other day and said to me, dump your husband who's not a Christian and marry that cute, sensitive Christian man you met at church. <laughs> I heard God say this. No, you did not. <laughs> Here's what God says. I already read it to you. If they want to leave, 
uh, or if they're a non-believer and they're willing to live with you, don't leave them. But then he goes on and says this in 1 Corinthians 7, 15, but if the husband or wife who isn't a Christian insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the Christian husband or wife is not required to stay with them for God wants his children to live in peace. So if the non-believer leaves and says, I don't wanna be married to you anymore, I don't wanna live with you anymore, I have a girlfriend, I have a boyfriend, whatever, I'm out of here, you're no longer required to stay in that marriage. You're free to remarry down the road. Uh, he said, well, what if they're a Christian and they leave? Well, I would question if they're a Christian, if they would leave. So I don't think the point is, do they say they're a Christian? I think the big issue is, did they leave you? Did they abandon you? Now, having said these things, there's so many complexities in all of this stuff. Because some of you are thinking, yeah, but what about this and what about that? I can't deal with all of it. You need biblical counseling. And your situation needs to be looked at and see what the Lord says. Because sometimes there's a place for separation, not divorce. Let's say you live in a home where there's an abusive spouse. They hit, they get drunk, they endanger you or your children. Well, I guess God wants me to just stay here. No, you, you are free to separate from that person. If your life is in danger, uh, and challenge them to get it together and to get help and to change. And so you need to keep yourself safe and keep your children safe. But having said that, uh, the ultimate goal, even in separation, is reconciliation. It's not like I'm taking a vacation from you because you drive me crazy because you don't put the you know, cap back on the toothpaste or what's it. It's more like, hey, I, we need time apart and you need to get biblical counsel. We can get it together so we can ultimately reconcile. I find it interesting that there's no verse in the Bible that says, also you can divorce because of irreconcilable differences. And how many marriages have been dissolved because of irreconcilable differences? Listen, I've told you this before. I have had irreconcilable differences with my wife for almost 50 years. <laughs> We're very different people. Very different. She's very neat. I'm kind of messy. She's sometimes late. I'm often early. She's cute and I'm fat. It's irreconcilable. <laughs> No, but I'm kind of making light of it because of course you're different. It might have been that very difference that drew you together. Ever heard of opposites attracting? So that strength that they bring is maybe a strength you didn't have and vice versa, but this is what the Bible says. But even if divorce happens, that doesn't mean there's no hope. I received a letter from a listener to our radio broadcast, A New Beginning. And this lady writes, Dear Greg, I've been listening to your program for 15 years. I was struggling with a marriage that was not going very well. We'd been married for 25 years, but my husband and I got a divorce. However, as I was listening to your marriage series on air, I was able to grow and be changed, and I learned to love my husband in a way I never knew was possible, and now we are married again. Isn't that great? She continues on, for the past five years, it's been such a blessing. So divorce happens, but here's a woman that remarried her husband and it's better than ever. We wanna divorce-proof our marriage. How do we do that? Here in California, we always have our predictable wildfires in the summer, right? And I remember a number of years ago, I've seen a photo uh, 
of a home that, that was standing there and it was surrounded by all of these burned down homes. And I mean burned to their foundation. Nothing left of these homes and here stands this home still affected by some uh, smoke damage but, but the structure was fine. And so they did a little article about why did this home survive the wildfire? They interviewed the owner of the home. He said, what did you do? He says, well, I found out what was required and went beyond it. He did double pane windows, extra thick stucco walls, sealed eaves, concrete tile roof, and abundant insulation. So the firefighters went to that neighborhood and said, let's make a stand at this home. We think it will withstand the fire. I'm asking you to make a stand today for your marriage. Only you can make it. I can't make it for you, we can't make it for you. Only you can stand up as a man, a woman, a husband or a wife and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's not happening here. This home is standing. Infidelity is not coming into this home. Divorce is not coming into this home. You make that choice. Maybe God has spoken to your heart and you have seen your need for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came from heaven to this earth. He was born in a manger. He died on a cross. He rose again from the dead. Why? Because he loves you. And he wants a relationship with you. Listen, I'm not talking about religion. I don't want to be a religious person. I don't think you want to be one either. I'm talking about relationship with God. Jesus, who died and rose again, stands at the door of your life and he knocks and he says, if you'll hear his voice and open the door, he will come in. Question, have you asked Jesus Christ to come and live inside of you? You might say, well, I, I think so, I'm not sure. Hey, if someone moved into your house in the middle of the night, do you think you would be aware of it? I'm sure you would. And in the same way, if Christ has come to live inside of you, you will know. And if you don't know, maybe he has not come in yet. He's just a prayer away. All you need to do is say, Jesus, I want this relationship with you. I want you to forgive me of my sin. I want to go to heaven when I die. Would you like to do that? Would you like Christ to come into your life? If so, why don't you just pray this simple prayer with me? You can pray it out loud or you can pray it in the quietness of your heart. But this is a prayer where you're asking Jesus Christ to be your Savior and Lord. Pray this with me now. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, but I know that you're the Savior who died on the cross for my sin and rose again from the dead. Now come into my life. I choose to follow you from this moment forward. Thank you for hearing this prayer and answering this prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Did you just pray that prayer with me? If so, I want you to know in the authority of scripture that Christ himself has come to live inside of you. And let me be the first to say to you, congratulations and welcome to the family of God.